and welcome to the Molyneux View podcast with me, Jackie Oatley, and your favourite Wolverhampton Wanderers correspondent, Tim Spears, who has been absolutely inundated with questions from his adoring Twitter public this week, which we will come on to a little bit later. Hi, Tim. Hello. You're right. Yeah, I'm right, thanks. Our guest on the podcast should be very, very interesting. Kevin Thelwell is our guest. He spent 11 years at Wolves. He left his role in February to move to the New York Red Bulls, where he's head of sport now. And that should be fascinating to hear him talk about his time at Molyneux and perhaps why he left. Now, Tim, how are you, my friend? What have you been up to? Have you been uh, taking advantage of the new relaxation of the rules? Uh, I've been playing a bit of tennis. Oh, my calves today. Deary me. Oh, I feel like I've got. I feel like I've got nettles in 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 my calves. They're like, every time I move, oh, it stings. Is this from tennis? Yeah. Have yeah. you not been well, moving I'd, I'd for the last an, ten weeks? Ep- epic five setter, you know, with a bit of. Uh, it's like Federer versus Nadal at Wimbledon. It was only in West Park. You've suddenly got rather busy, haven't you? I mean, Ooh. now we have dates for football and stuff yes. happening. Yeah. You you are being inundated with messages. You are writing even faster than you were before. But tell us, first of all, what's been happening at Compton this week? Yeah, well, it's been it's been very busy. Football is back. Training has been ramped up. It's it's great that we've got this this date now to work towards. I think it's I think it's a cliche, but it has given everyone a bit of a lift, I think, you know, those involved in the game. And um training has stepped up at, at Compton, so they've now got full contact training. And uh, did an article last week outlining what Compton Park is like at the moment. It's a very, very different place, you know. If anyone has ever been there, it'll be unrecognisable in terms of what you can and can't do. And it's—I've got to say, you know, doing some research into this, it, training grounds in the Premier League have got to be the safest places in the country to be at the moment. I mean, there's disinfectant and hand gel everywhere. And um, there's all sorts of quirky things that, that they all have to do. They all have to sign into an app every morning to say that they're all okay. This is before they're allowed into the training ground. They've all got to take their ID before they're, before they're let in. They all have their temperature checked with a little thing to the forehead. Sometimes they get tested for coronavirus. That happens twice a week at little stations at Compton. Then they go, they go to the indoor 4G pitch where each player's got his own individual station. He can pick up his drinks for the day. Um, he can he can put hand sanit- hand sanitizer on his hands. Then he can walk out to the training pitch. They do their training. Then everything is disinfected afterwards. Everything. So the ball, the um, the gloves, the mannequins, the goalposts, the cones, everything. The mannequins. Got, they disinfect the, the mannequins. The, they wash their hands. Yeah, you and know, everything. you know, for like um, yeah. when for like if they want a wall in training, yeah. to try and get get the ball over. Everything, disinfect everything disinfected. And then, so they arrive in their kit and they leave in their kit. So you've got this this wonderful sight, as someone described to me. It's like um, it's like a it's like a Sunday league car park where all the players will walk to their cars in their kit, and then they'll 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 swap their boots for their trainers while sitting in the car with the door open. You know, they'll chuck the boot, they'll chuck the football in the boot. So it's 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 proper back to basics. But however, they are been they are been so well looked after, and obviously the you know all Premier League clubs have got the money to do this, but. You can see why there were no tests, um, no positive tests in the, in the latest round that they had announced over the weekend because it's such a safe place to be at the moment. So, Tim, how does it work in terms of physios and medical people because and masseurs, etc.? Because they're hands-on people. Yes, they wear gloves, but they're going to be well within the two-metre uh, distance. How will that work in practice? Yeah, I mean, like I said, there are strict guidelines on everything, really, and, and, and every club's been sent very long documents as to what they can and can't do. 
and that'll be the case for stadiums as well once they get up and running they've got to be so so tight on their controls and yeah as far as physios go um, the official rule is essential treatment only now whether you class uh, a post-training session rub down as, as essential or not is, is sort of open to interpretation really but I think as as long as as long as everybody involved in this process has, has been tested for coronavirus twice a week and come back negative, you know these are pretty safe places to be. You know the staff are all wearing um, gloves and masks and whatnot. And yeah, I was, uh, I was privy to a, a document last week with a whole host of rules and regulations um, about what they can do on the training ground. And as for yeah, as for physio work in particular, so massages and and injury prevention and um, injury recovery work. The official guideline is that playing employees are able to access essential treatment from medical and physiotherapy employees as long as the number of people per room is kept to a minimum at all times and such treatment is pre-approved by the club doctor, which in Wars' case will be Matt Perry. The maximum number of people permitted in an area at any time will be clearly recorded and all relevant employees shall be made aware of these restrictions. So yeah, basically everything they're doing is is being recorded and is being sent to the Premier League on, on request. Every training session has been filmed uh, and again sent to the Premier League on, on request who, who can have access to GPS data as well as to where the players are. The Premier League are also sending over... Um, snoop squads to training grounds sort of like Ofsted style inspections where they'll say they come in and, and come and inspect the training ground so honestly i'm so impressed with it all everything is being done to keep these to keep this place safe it really is it's amazing we just got to hope you don't have any injuries because then it does become complicated but yeah those um, post-training post-match rub downs will be interesting as to whether that counts as being essential but all will become clear in due course what about fixtures this is what we are Ooh. all desperate to know we know who Wolves have to play between now and the end of the season. But what we don't know is when and maybe where? Or are they not involved in the, the neutral venue situation? No, they're not. I think Wolves' game should all be home and away. Um, the, the only the delay is TV because every single game is going to be on TV and they need to decide when and where they're being played. They'll want the, they'll want the best games for the peak audiences, you know, Friday night, Saturday night, whatever, Saturday afternoon. So that's, that's why it's been um, taking a little bit of time to put that together. But equally, there's not a, as great a rush as there would be normally if fans were going, because fans need five weeks to, to book tickets, book travel, etc. Obviously, that's not the case. So um, no, you're right, we do know where who Wolves have got to play, of course. They start at West Ham away, which Jason Burke from The Telegraph uh, said the other day is likely to be Friday night, he understands. And then Bournemouth at home is the first home game. And then they've got Villa away, Arsenal at home, Sheffield United away, Everton at home, Burnley away, Palace at home, and then end away at Chelsea. So it's a pretty good running. I think it's it's one of the best, if not the best, statistically speaking, of all the Premier League clubs. So Wolves, you know, they'll be they'll be going into it in bullish, confident mood that if they get it right from the word go, if they can hit the ground running and have a fantastic month, then it, it could be it could be an unforgettable couple of months coming up if they could finish fifth in their Premier League and then do something special in the Europa League after that. Then um, that's what they're aiming towards. It's a very clear goal for the next kind of uh, next month or two. Notice it's the fixtures coming up first: Aston Villa, Sheffield United, Man City, Arsenal, uh, being teams with the games in hand. And I guess mm-hmm. that makes a lot of sense because if the worst were to happen and there'd be a spike and 
there's a reason perhaps why they just can't fulfill any more fixtures. At least those games being out of the way would mean we've dealt with that issue of it not being a level playing field. Because if it was done on points per game, then Sheffield United would finish above Wolves completely unfairly in the bigger picture. But uh, so I guess, I don't know, Wolves fans hoping that Villa beat Sheffield United in that particular fixture, just yeah, on that basis. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a lot of an- there's a lot of anti-Villa chat around for the past couple of years. But yeah, on that particular game, We'd want a Villa win because yeah, if the season were you, you're right, it's all very positive at the moment and football's coming back and the country's opening up. But you know, there's always that risk that um, could get a second spike and this could all be halted. So yeah, it's a good point actually. Yeah, very good point. Because it's not being um, talked about the fact that this is all proposed return to football. It's it's not quite in the small print. It's in the same size font as the rest of the Premier League statement. Mm. But people are assuming, yay, football's coming back and Villa, Sheffield United, Man City, Arsenal, waiting for the other fixtures. This is all great. But actually, it is dependent on certain factors. I don't want to be a doom and gloom merchant, but it is a little bit on a tightrope, isn't it? It is. It is. You're right. But like I said, as soon as there are no positive tests in football at the moment, and like I said, training grounds are such a safe place to be, I, 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 can, I can see it going ahead, which I wouldn't have said a month ago. You know, it's amazing that it's all kind of happened so quickly, really. Um, and around Europe as well. We see Spain and Spain and Italy trying to get back to normal as well. So... Um, just to point out on the Europa League, because we've had a few questions about that, um, UEFA are set to make a decision on June the 17th as to what they do with the Europa League. So still a couple of weeks away yet. But what we anticipate is, to the benefit of Wolves, I, w- I would hope and think that the Europa League will take place after the Premier League is finished. So Wolves, who have encountered problems with playing Thursday, Sunday, Thursday, Sunday, won't have that issue now. Um and there's been suggestions. I think the Getafe, Getafe is still in the Europa League, and their president was quoted as saying that he thinks UEFA's idea is to play the quarters, the semis, and the final in one city in a, in quick succession over like a, a week or ten days. So um, it remains to be seen whether that happens. Of course, Wolves have got to get through the last 16 first. Olympiacos um, due at Molyneux in early August. We we suspect, and if Wolves get through, perhaps there'll be this kind of one city shootout. Because um, of course it's an absolute nightmare trying to get this tournament back on because every country is at a different stage in terms of the virus and some countries will you'd have to quarantine for two weeks if you came to the UK you'd have to quarantine for two weeks before you can play football so they might have to find countries where the quarantine rules are a little bit little bit more lax um, depending on what stage they're at with the virus so all sorts of things to work out but we'll know in a couple of weeks what they plan to do with the Europa League and obviously Wolves persuasion we all hope we can get it done. And as we record on Monday afternoon, we're waiting Pretty Patel, the Home Secretary, uh, talking about the relaxation of quarantine rules for top-level sports. We'll have to wait to see um, how that takes place. Interesting also seeing the, the government briefing the other day, Oliver Dowden, the Culture Media Sports Secretary, talking about uh, free-to-air matches and how they're going to be allocated. Of course, four will be on the BBC, many will be on Sky, BT and Amazon as well, and how they're going to try and allocate them according to sort of the most volatile ones where they really, really, really don't want people congregating outside grounds. You're thinking sort of Anfield, Liverpool winning the league, that kind of thing, Uh, but also not around other people's houses because that's a big issue. So say somebody's got BT and their mates haven't and they all pile over because they can't go to the pub and watch it. So they're having to be quite tactical in the way they allocate these matches, which is interesting and very new. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we see people congregating all over the country now because the sun's out. 
Uh, I mean, if Liverpool win the Premier League, I, I don't think you can stop you can stop fans congregating after thirty years. They'll they'll just want to celebrate. So um, no, an interesting consideration. And yeah, you're right. Free to air games. There are twenty five on Sky. They're making them free to air. It's on it's on um, Pick TV. They're going to be putting these games, which is a free view channel. So as long as you've got your as long as you've got your free view package, you'll be able to watch those games. And four on BBC. So it's 29 games. So, so yeah, for the for the first time in um, in a long time, Wolves will have a game on on free TV. Can't remember the last one they had because the Watford semi final was on um, BT Sport, wasn't it last BT. year? Do you remember? Mm, let's not talk about that. Moving on quickly. Um, thank you for now. And another article you did, which was really interesting. It was a long read, but it was an easy read because you broke it up into bite-sized chunks um, and quotes from really interesting people involved, including Paul Berry, who's head of communications, and uh, Steve Morgan, etc., about the Solbakken and, and Saunders time, you know, the awful second successive relegation. The likes of Kevin Foley was very interesting. I'd forgotten he'd gone to Copenhagen and was reunited Ooh. with Stola Solbakken after that. Completely forgot that. Were you a little bit surprised that um, players spoke quite so positively about the Saunders regime? Yes. I mean, the it was interesting putting that putting that together, and I, yeah, I think Kevin Foley going to Copenhagen and working under Solbakken again gave him a really different perspective on Solbakken. And at Copenhagen, he got the time to um, utilize his own style to sign his own players and build up a team over many years. He's been there ever since. You know, he's been there seven years, uh, Solbakken back at Copenhagen. So, so he thinks if he'd have been granted the same time and freedom at Wolves, then it could have been a different story. And again, it was interesting hearing about Solbakken's tactics. And he loved um, soaking up pressure and hitting teams on the break. And it didn't work for him. And the fans didn't like it. And the players didn't like it. Uh, it's exactly what Nuno does, you know, week after week. So it was very interesting to um, to hear their take on it. And yeah, Saunders, I think, I think the general feeling was... Who could they have brought in to save Wolves at that point? Because the overriding issue of, the, of that piece for me was that you had um, Mick McCarthy's players, you had Stoller Solbakken's players, and then you had a couple of Dean Saunders players. And to mix those together and all the different playing styles they had, and Sylvan Ebex Blake says there was basically three camps within the squad, those that, those that were on board, those that weren't, and those that were willing to try but was, were quite sceptical. So when you've got all that mishmash, it's an absolute recipe for disaster and... You know, we had Steve Morgan on a few weeks ago on this podcast saying he made mistakes, and if you're going to point fingers, uh, he would be the one to point them out. I think because there was obviously an awful lot of mismanagement at the club at that at that time. Yeah, interesting insight as well, which which you found in Dave Edwards' book, which I've got actually. I need to get around to reading that. Living my dream, and he said about um, this poor run of form and almost two months without a win, and suddenly it ended in spectacular style at Bristol City in early December. And Dave points out that that's because. Captain Cole Henry got the players together in a pre-match huddle and said, never mind the tactics, let's just play our own game. And they did, and they won 4-1. So, but yeah. that's just not going to work long-term, is it? If players just aren't buying into what the manager's doing and um, and that awful cup defeat at Luton and what have you, and the rest is history. But really good insight, so thank you for that. So do um, read Tim's articles on The Athletic. Uh, .co.uk subscribe there if you haven't already because um, there's plenty of insight there now to this week's guest Kevin Thelwell spent 11 years at Molyneux having joined as academy manager from Derby County in 2008 and he progressed to being head of football development and recruitment before being made sporting director in 2016 in August last year he was appointed as a director of the club until it was announced four months ago 
know that he'd be leaving to take up the role of head of sport at New York Red Bulls. And we're delighted to have Kevin on the Molyneux View now. Welcome, Kevin. Yeah, thank you, Jackie. Thank you, Tim. Very nice to be here. Looking forward to it. Great to have you with us. So you left the Midlands for New York and you barely had time to sing Start Spreading the News. And you're back. You're back in Stafford down the road from Tim. Yeah, well, obviously I spent um, I spent about four or five weeks all crossing, uh, across at New York Red Bulls in New Jersey. And everything was going, obviously going very well. But of course, with the virus and everything else that's going on, um, when the country started to lock down, it made sense to, to come back. I had my daughter's wedding to come back to as well, uh, fortunately. And unfortunately, that's being postponed. But um yeah, looking forward to getting back stateside uh, as soon as possible, really. You had a great job at Molyneux. You were a director. I just took you through you know, how you progressed through the club. and You're clearly working your way up to, to the very top. And then you left the Premier League, Europa League, with the club pushing for Champions League to go to MLS. What was the thinking there? Well, I think in the first instance, I regard myself as being really lucky to have worked at Wolves for the length of the time that I did. It was 11 and a half years in the end. Um, in a lot of different roles that, that had lots of different responsibilities. Uh, but I think in the end, after that 11 and a half years, I was sort of thinking about what's next and um, the opportunity to work for, for a great organisation like Red Bull and then work in the MLS, which is a, a, a developing league, let's say. Certainly not the level of the Premier League at the moment, but, but it's working very, very hard to get to that sort of standard and then live close to one of the, the biggest and the best cities in the world you know, was, um, was too much of a draw to turn down. Um, I think as sporting directors, you want the opportunity to work abroad. And so to have all of those things going on, um, like I say, was, was, I just saw it as a great opportunity for me and the family. And a great challenge as well, I imagine, you know, in, in a kind of a burgeoning league. Was it, was it an ambition of yours to go to America or, or were there other places that you were looking at for your next move? Yeah, I think it's, I think it's always been a, an ambition to work abroad, not, not necessarily just the States. I think... Um, uh, to actually work in a different culture, to work in a different environment and different context. I think um, lots of people in football would, would want that opportunity. And like I say, the culmination of Red Bull, New York and then the MLS was a, was just a great opportunity and too good to turn down. And I, I see the MLS as being a, a very much a developing league. Uh, they've gone from, um, let's say, a league where older, um, more established players almost finish off their careers, although there's still a bit of that going on to be in very much a development league where they're looking at you know, young players from South America being in, imported into the league, developing and then moving out to Bundesliga, moving out to Premier League, etc. So to, to be a part of helping that plan to grow, especially like such a big club like New York Red Bull, um, was, um, was just a fantastic opportunity. Well, I was going to say, because Jackie's kind of mentioned there, I mean, Wolves, Wolves are still a club massively on the up. It must have been a wrench to leave as well. But is, is, it, is it the idea of a new challenge more than anything? Yeah, I think so. I think um, I think I was again. We're all we all work in the industries that we work in because we want purpose. And, and having worked at Wolves for eleven and a half years, I was a little bit worried about becoming a bit institutionalised and, and and not learning and not developing as an individual and as a sporting director. And so uh, it's not. And, and by the way, I was never. I've never been one that was looking for an opportunity somewhere else. It, it didn't quite happen like that. It was almost. It came. It was something that came towards me at the time and. Um, I, I think once that opportunity came up and I could see that there was going to be a, a, an opportunity to really help the league grow and really help the football club grow and then also gain additional experience with people like Paul Mitchell and Ralph Rangnick who are, and Lawrence Stewart who all work at the Red Bull Group, it just felt like a really good opportunity and had a really good feel to it and, um, and it almost became a situation where you sort of went, well, if you're not going to do it now, when are you going to do it? 
And so, um, so I decided to take the plunge and I have to say I haven't been, I haven't been disappointed so far. So had this job not come up, would you have been 100% happy to stay at Wolves? Well, yeah, why not? Because, I mean, like you make the point, um, Wolves is without question on the up. I think uh, the growth that you've seen in Wolves over the last couple of years in particular, considered it's only going in one direction, we hope, touch wood. Um, and, and there's bigger and better things on, on the horizon if things keep going according to plan. You know, it's um, top seven, top six, Premier League opportunity to do well in the cup competitions, Europa League this year as well. I think Wolves have got an outstanding opportunity to try and win that uh, competition in due course. And then perhaps even Champions League, depending on how, uh, how things finish up with, um, with the Premier League. So, so yeah, it was, um, of course, I was still growing and developing at Wolves. And yeah, I would have been more than happy to stay because it's a fantastic club with fantastic people. What were your favourite parts of the job at Wolves that you did latterly and what were the, the greatest frustrations you had there? Well, well, I think the best part of the sporting director role, and it's probably probably a nice time to try and frame that uh, those roles and responsibilities, both, you know, both for Wolves and then for other clubs. So the way in which I would describe it is that the head coach, so in our case Nuno, would have responsibility for preparation of the team, performance of the team and then fundamentally results. And then the sporting director role would have responsibility for you know, the support and the operations that sit, sit around that first team, that head coach, to make sure that they were as strong as they possibly could be or fit for purpose. So uh, recruitment, um, performance analysis, sports science, medical services, academy, so on and so on. And so the, the thing about the sporting director role is it's a, every day is a very different day. You can't, people say to me, come on, what do you do from nine to five on a Monday to, a, Monday to Saturday? And it's completely different every day because you are almost trying to work as oil and glue, trying to pin stuff together or get things going again. So there's lots of different challenges at lots of different levels, both in terms of managing upwards and then also in terms of managing staff, etc. So that's probably the best thing. I really enjoyed that part of it because you had the opportunity to work across lots of different parts of the organisation. Um, the most difficult, most frustrating bit is probably the recruitment piece because that's the bit that everybody uh, wants and has likes to have an opinion on. And sometimes it's very difficult to communicate exactly where you are in that market or at any one time because you're trying to balance off so many different things to either to get deals over the line or not get deals over the line or not have the opportunity to talk about the, the level and the depth of work that you've done um, to, to try and create the very best circumstance for, for a club like Wolves. So I have to say that can also be a really great piece, especially when you sign a player that makes a big difference. But, um, but nine times out of ten, those transfer windows are very, very hard work. Um, along those lines, I wonder who would be the sign-in that you were kind of most proud of and most, most pleased with, with, with the impact that they went on to make with the club? Well, that, well I think more recently, um, I, think, I think Leander Dendonka has done, done a very good job. Um, I think Wolves are very lucky to have him. Very sensible young man, very professional. Um, didn't get in the team straight away, um, but never that, that that take away from his commitment to the cause. You know, was an ultimate professional until he got his opportunity, and then when he got his opportunity, he took it. And I think every club needs players like him who just perform at a very high level, um, who are very low maintenance, but have the ability to play in lots of different positions. You know, he's as comfortable, you know, in the Cody position as the right side of a three as the holding defensive midfielder, as the number eight running on. So I think in, in most recent times, probably Leander, I'd be most proud of. Obviously very, very proud of Connor, Cody. 
and he should be very, very proud of himself. I think he's um, he's shown to everybody what sort of guy he is. He's just he's just an incredible he's just an incredible fella, really. And he's just um, I don't think you could want for a better captain, really. He's um, he's been he's been terrific on the field and off the field, and, and it's great now to see that that every that everybody's seeing that as well. Because in the early days, he, he didn't quite get the acclaim uh, that he's that he's probably getting now. And then, and then probably in times gone by, probably Benick was probably you know, in his time was a very good signing first time around. I think um, Sacco, Dicko, and Phoebe in their time, whichever order you place them in, did an incredible job for us. And it, it's a shame that we couldn't keep that trio together or keep them fit uh, because I think I think at time it was I think they just got about forty eight goals between the three of them. Um, I think if we could have kept that trio together, it would have made a big difference. Unfortunately, not so to be. So you're saying that it was. Sorry, were you saying it was it was you who identified Connor Cody for Wolves and signed him? Yes, that was you. So yeah. We, so I mean, how yeah. much of that recruitment was about? Well, we need a. Well, I suppose he was in the style of a Stephen Gerrard type player in the the way that he played, the role that he played. But how much did you identify his leadership characteristics at that stage, or is that something that really came to the fore later on? Not quite by accident, but really he developed since joining the club. No, I think I think Connor Cody's always been that guy. I mean, everyone's known Connor for for such a long time because obviously he played. He was a, he was a Liverpool player then, back when he was at the academy, um, and he'd also played in all of. He'd also represented, I think, nearly all, if not all, of the England uh, of the England national teams. You know, apart from the senior one, of course, which is uh, another another uh, discussion and debate. But I think everybody knew exactly what sort of person he was. And of course, in recruitment, you're always looking for good people. I think if you can find the right people in terms of uh, their values and in terms of their culture and cultural fit, then I think you're a large part of the way there. And then, of course, what I think Nuno has done is he's brought out the very best in Connor. Um, Connor was always in a position where was he going to be a centre back? Was he going to be a defensive central midfielder? And of course, he had a little bit of time at right back at Wolves. But I think when Nuno came in, he, he recognised what sort of person he was, and then he was also able to identify, you know, I mean, I mean, I'm calling it the Cody position because he has very much made it his own. Not in terms of what he does at Wolves, but across the league, he's been incredible. And uh, without question, I think when we got promoted from the Championship to the Premier League. There was that discussion of, oh, is he going to be able to cope and is he going to be able to do it? And I think it's, you know, it's an emphatic yes, isn't it? And um, so, so I think, I think those, those, um, those values and that type of person was always there. And then I think what Nuno did was he found the, the exactly the right position for him to go on and grow and develop into the person he is today. You mentioned there about identifying characters and personalities. I remember talking to a a leading chief executive of another club who really didn't take that into consideration at all. And it was purely about the stats and they, they totally believed in the stats and they think, well, mm. the personality and the character comes through in the stats, which is a really interesting way of looking at it. But but I gather that's just not the way that you do it. And you look at the Wolves now in the present day and one of their strengths is the fact that, I know apart from the Morgan Gibbs-White issue recently, you don't really hear them in the headlines for the wrong reasons. You don't hear about bad apples and bad eggs anymore. Is that very much by design? Yeah, I think I think people value different things in recruitment. So some might say, well, let's just go for the most talented players and it'll all sort itself out. But certainly in all of the time that I've been in Wol- involved at Wolves, and I'm not saying this is just me, this would be this would be Fosen, this would be Steve Morgan, this would be uh, me and the recruitment team, this would be the head coaches. We've always wanted people who are have clear values that are in line with the values that Wolves, the football club, stands for, 
because I think if you all believe in the same thing, if you can get everybody believing in the same thing and behaving in the same way, and that's not to say you don't have the opportunity for disagreement in teams and with people because that's an important part of the process. But in general, if you can get people to believe in the same things and behave in the same way, then you've got a chance, in my opinion, to achieve anything. And so that was certainly something that we focused down on, especially having some difficult times when we moved from Premier League to Championship and then Championship to League One. Um, pardon my French, but it almost became a no-dickhead mentality. Let's really focus on getting people who are desperate to be at Wolves, who are connected to the fan base and understand the fan base, and then also have the ability and the qualities to be able to produce on the field. Uh, and I think we've been, touch wood, very lucky, you know, in all of the time that, um, that I worked at Wolves, that we were able to factor that into the players that we um, that we tried to sign. You mentioned earlier about maybe nine nine out of ten deals that maybe don't cross the line, and I remember you telling me once about the amount of hours you you do during a transfer window and the the dozens of deals that that you actually do do. I wonder if there are a, a, a deal or two that that went awry over the years that that, that caused you the most particular frustration of not, of not getting one over the line. Is there anything anything you can allude to? Uh, no, but, well, probably at the time, probably at the time, I, I, I would I remember being very very frustrated around lots of different deals and. Uh, maybe there was a bit of a certainly not table certainly not table throwing because I'm not that strong but certainly pushed over a chair or two in, in my time at Wolves but <laughs> but but, but, but looking back yeah but looking back now it's um you know it, it really is just part of the process and so um and so what you end up doing is you end up going down the line and spinning a lot of plates around top targets let's say two or three top targets in particular and there's so much detail around every deal that you know, it takes a long time to be able to get it close to the finish line, especially because if you're talking about top players, then you've, you're not on your own in terms of wanting to try and sign that player. And then what happens in the end is you make a decision around one or two players, depending on you know, uh, lots of different factors. And sometimes, sometimes there's a player that you feel should be chosen. Sometimes there's a player that you think that shouldn't be chosen. So uh, while, while we're sat here today, I'm... I'm, I'm, I'm pretty ambivalent about it and I don't feel frustrated at all because I recognise that part of the process but that's very very difficult when you are sort of 24-7 probably a bit tired and fatigued and, and working away in that transfer window when you're you're stressed out against the clock as it were so um so I, no I don't I don't particularly want to talk about any individual but um hopefully I've alluded oh, damn. to damn that's such a shame because Tim was desperate for you to do that just like, you, you probably <laughs> picked it up yeah <laughs> we nearly signed x y and z player He's texting me now. Any chance? Just give me a name. He's texting me. <laughs> I wonder which player made you chuck a chair the furthest, and whether you oh, spent God, more money yeah. on the chair than the player. And then... <laughs> oh, never mind. It was worth a try, Tim. It was worth a try. It was but worth in a terms go. of managers, because that was, you know, that's part of your remit as well, of course, isn't it? Recruiting managers. Hmm. Um, how different is that to recruiting players? And um, and how satisfied are you? I guess you're going to be very pleased with with the Kenny Jacket deal. Yeah, well, I, th- I think it's a similar process. Less talking about the finance, I might add, but it's um, without question you are you're trying to frame the needs of the organisation. And, and, and again, in my opinion, where lots of clubs go wrong, they they simply pick somebody for whatever reason, and then and then figure out pretty later on down the line that they don't fit in whatever way, shape, or form. And so, again, I think we were very lucky that we were working in a structure with with Jez and Steve Morgan in particular where we were able to frame the, the needs of the organisation at that time and then find somebody who was line the best fit for our organisation. So 
it was pretty clear that we needed somebody who, uh, going back to the Kenny Jacket uh, appointment, it was pretty clear that we were going to focus on young players and giving youth an opportunity in League One. It was pretty clear that we needed a reconnection with the fans and we needed somebody that could galvanise everybody involved with Wolves and, and get us playing in a particular style on the pitch. And then again, we wanted somebody that we, that we could work with, somebody that epitomised the core values of the football club. So honesty, humility, respect, you know, all of those things. And Kenny had that in abundance. It wasn't a, it wasn't an appointment that wasn't without its difficulty. He wasn't it certainly wasn't from memory. He wasn't the first choice in the in the eyes of the of the fans. But very quickly, when when he was appointed, people could figure out you know what sort of guy he was. And then of course he did a fantastic job. And it was a bit of a shame for Ken because um, I, I just it would it would have been nice to have given Ken a shot with greater financial opportunity because um, obviously he did a great deal. He did a great job in League One. And you know, looking back, that seems easy now, but it, but it wasn't difficult at the time. And Sheffield United, even though they're now back in the Premier League, took a long time to get out. And, and other big clubs still haven't got out of uh, League, uh, League One. Um, so we did a great job of that. And then when we were in the Championship, I remember we, I think we missed out by one goal on, on, in terms of getting to the playoffs, never mind one point. And so um, I think if we, would have cut, if we could have got to the playoffs with the, that front three of Nua, Dicko, Sacco and Afobi, I don't think anybody would have wanted to play us in that championship, and maybe it would have looked a bit different. But hey, hopes so that, that that's how it was, and um, I think Kenny did a great job for Wolves, and 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 continues to do a great job, you know, you know, at Portsmouth. Now, Kevin, um, me and Jackie get a lot of stick on on Twitter and social media, but good, good. It's, um, it does, it, 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 yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's all it's all fully merited. Um, Mostly to each other, you, by the way. <laughs> But you get quite a bit yourself. I mean, you go on message boards and, and Twitter. I remember, you know, certainly in the kind of past four or five years when you've had a really senior role. And it's, it's always felt to me that there's a very different perception of the work that you do from inside the club to outside the club. And, you know, I think someone told me once that, that Nuno and Jeff Shee just couldn't quite believe, really, that, that you didn't get the, the respect that you deserve, perhaps, from, from the fan base. Is that, was that something you were always aware of? And, um, and did it bother you in any way? Uh, yeah, I think it was. It was I'd be lying if I say I wasn't aware of it, and I'd be lying to say that it didn't bother me at the time. Um, but I think when you try and again, when you try and sort of figure out in your mind exactly what it should look like, I think you just got to focus on the things that you can control. So, what could I control at Wolves? I could control um, how people who worked with me felt about how we operated, people who I worked for. And then, and then also, you look a bit closer to home, and you say, "Okay, well, am I making my family prouder, or am I, or am I proud of the small part that I am playing, or have played in the success of Wolves?" And I will say, it's a small part. And, so, and the answer to those things is yes. And you can't control much else, really. Um, you know, and a, a very experienced sporting director once told me I was on a sporting director conference, and, and somebody was saying, "Oh, exactly that problem, Tim." I'm in the sporting director role and people don't realise what I do and I don't get any credit for any of the good things that I do, blah, blah, blah. And I was a very experienced sporting director, sat at the back of the room, just giggling to himself. And so, of course, people spin around and say, come on, what are you thinking? What's, what's your perspective? And he said, just, just got to get, old, get over yourself. You're never going to get this or you're never going to get that. And, of course, football is a very emotive sport and I think that's how you've got to package it, really. If you're in this role, 
and you're expecting to get a pat on the back every two minutes, well, it's just definitely not going to happen. And, it's just, and I suppose it's the same for you guys. And as long as you can look in yourself in the mirror and say, right, okay, well, I did all that I could to make that a success and I can be proud of the work that I did, well, I think that's as much as you can take from it, really. Um, hopefully, in due course, people might look back at, the, at my time at Wolves of Sport and Director and say, okay, well, there are a few, there are a few Grant Holtz and a few Sagbogues, but there are also some good players and all. I thought I thought we weren't going to bring Grant Holt up in this in this podcast. Jack, Jackie insisted she wouldn't. <laughs> well, I mean the fact that he's a wrestler now, I can't can't let it lie, really, can we? You know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it must be frustrating for you when you see this, and of course you've got kids as well, and they probably see stick you get. And it's one thing not getting credit, but it's another thing getting criticised, I guess, because if people don't know what you do, but then you're getting criticised for something that perhaps you haven't done, that must be even more frustrating, right? Yeah, I think it can be frustrating, but at the end of the, at the end of the day, I think your role as the sporting director is to protect the best interests of the football club. Now, sometimes that might come at your own detriment, but the role is you have to do what's best for the organisation. And, and, and without question, I felt, I feel, and felt like I did that in all of my time at Wolves. You know, I don't think I ever put uh, the club in a position whereby we talked, we, we aired our, our dirty linen in public. Um, and I think that was the right thing to do, and I still think that's the right thing to do in in, in the role. Um, and of course, in, in football, everybody wants somebody to blame, don't they? So um, unfortunately, at that time at Wolves, it felt like it was it was going to be me. But listen, I that doesn't take away from the time that I had at Wolves. I had eleven and a half years, brilliant eleven and a half brilliant years. I was very very lucky to be involved in some um, some some amazing times, some amazing games, and some amazing um, uh, successes. And then also. Some of the defeats and some of the negative situations gave me unbelievable experience that I would never have got perhaps at any other football club. So um, I don't look back negatively at all. My time at Wolves will always be filled with a very positive emotion, both for me and my family. It's well known that George Mendes has a very prominent role at Wolves. Um, it's not known to what extent necessarily, but how did that impact on the way you did your job? Well, well, I think agents are, everyone can see that agents are a big part of football nowadays, big part of sport. And so, you know, if you're, if you're looking at sig significant others in the game that you're going to have to work with as a sporting director, you've obviously got your ownership group, you've got your head coach, you've got the people who report into you, the heads of department, and without question, agents has been, ha been added to that significant others. And so I think in modern day sport, modern day football, if you're going to think that you're not, if you're going to think that you're not going to be able to work with agents who are ultimately working with the players and, and in many ways controlling the players, then you're probably not going to be in the job for very long. Um, I mean, I've got a lot of time and respect for George and for Valdir, who work for Gestafoot. Without question, they are one of the biggest and the best agencies in, in the world. And their network really, really helps the people at Wolves because it gives them access to any football club in, in the whole of the world. It gives them access to not just heads of recruitment or chief scouts or sporting directors but to ownerships and so that's what I think they do better than anybody else I think they have the ability to connect right at that top level um, and I think at Wolves we're very lucky to get to get that advantage without question we've signed some guest of few clients that have done a brilliant job for Wolves and have also been really really good players but also really good people and so um, I sort of proof of the puddings in the eating really um, I think without question they've they've helped Wolves to to achieve the success that they've uh, that we're, that they're having today. It feels sorry, it feels weird talking about Wolves in the past sense. I keep on almost falling <laughs> into as if I'm still at the football club. <laughs> um, 
it's been uh, noticed and noticeable that, that the club haven't directly um, replaced you yet. And th- this is the part where you tell us you're irreplaceable. Um, <laughs> Here we go, Tim. <laughs> I just wondered if you could talk us through the um, the handover process because obviously it's it's not always the case when someone really senior leaves a football club that they do so amicably. But um, I gather you you had the chance to to kind of have a bit of a handover period and pass pass things on and information to to Jeff Shee and others. I wondered if you could talk us through how that happened and and how the club was left when you when you left the club. Yeah, well, well, well first and foremost, I mean, I worked at the club a long time, so. So without question, I want, I'm going to want to leave on good terms. And also I had a lot of time and a lot of respect for the people who worked there. And so it was never going to be anything but amicable from, from my perspective, because why would I want to undo 11 and a half years of good relationship? I, was never, I would never do that. Um, and then I was very lucky that I had a very open um, uh, relationship with Jeff Shee, where Jeff and I would, could, would talk about opportunities, like, for example... Um, there been many times in the past where I've been asked to um, talk to to other football clubs or organ- other organisations, and, and and then all of those times I would be very open with Jeff, and we would talk about the opportunity in, from a career perspective, and and in all of those times we decided it wasn't the right time to do anything, but the, the New York one was slightly different because he, he I think he could see that it was a it was a great opportunity, and it was. Um, it was also something that I was something that I was keen to do, but he was very supportive because he understands about people, and he understands about careers. And then again, if we're talking about handover, so uh, a big part of the role is, of course, is contracts and negotiations, and is also about succession planning, and also and always ensuring that, that the club is in the very best space um, with regards to its players. So again, I spend a lot of time making sure that all of the contracts and all of the negotiations were in place. I think we only had to do, again, from memory, because I'm in a different space now, but I think we had John Ruddy um, as a one-year option to take up. And, and then from a con- and then contractually around the squad, that was pretty much it. Um, so that was in good space. And then it really was just sitting down and talking about how we were organised across all of, those, um, all of those different support services and again, we're very lucky at Wolves. We've got some really good people there and in those heads of department spaces, you know, people like Phil Hayward before, um, Matt Perry as it is now, um, Andy Findlay, head of performance analysis, uh, people like John Marshall, Ben Rigglesworth and Matt Hobbs who work across, you know, the recruitment space, etc., etc. who are more than capable of, of managing and directing travel from a, a performance service uh, perspective. So yeah, so we literally just just sat down with Jeff and, and went through each detail, and then so he could understand some of the key priorities. And then um, once that was all in place, it was a chance for me to get off and a chance for him to just have a real good look at what was um, what was going on at that level and, and decide exactly how he wanted to take it forwards. We've gone all this time without really talking about Nuno very much, who is um, very much the figurehead of the club in terms of the fans who don't know too much about how it works at boardroom level, but. What was Nuno's influence on recruitment in terms of the players that are brought in? Because he is known for being so powerful. He is known for being working so closely with George Mendes as well. Uh, and yet you've got your job to do. So how does that dynamic work? Yeah, well, I think you, we're very lucky in the first instance and in that, that Nuno has got a very, very clear philosophy on football and coaching and a very clear style of play. And so, you know, the, the best thing that I can say about Nuno is that in terms of from a coaching perspective, you know, coaches, managers, etc., 
they tend to say, I need more time to build a philosophy. I need more time to build my team and the way it looks. And, you know, that's sometimes that can be nine, 12 months. Nuno was able to build that in five weeks pre-season. It was incredible, really, you know. And again, we were very lucky. We had a group of players who were all um, all bought into this new philosophy. But within five five weeks of him being in the football club, it looked like we'd been playing 3-4-3, three, 3-5-2 three, five, three, five, for about 10 years. And so from a recruitment perspective, that makes things much simpler when you've got a head coach who's very clear about the, the profiles and the positional attributes for each, posi- for, for each space because it means that you're able to direct the data and you're able to direct the recruitment search into very specific areas. You know, So, for example, we, for lots of times we'd be offered players and we were able to go, yeah, he's a good player, but he's not a good player for us because we've been, we've been very specific about the types of players and the types of profiles we were looking for. So that, that makes things much easier. And then, of course, what we would do is present one or two profiles to Nuno, and then Nuno would make a choice. Um, and again, I, I, I don't, can't think of a time where we signed a player that, he, that any head coach wouldn't have wanted, because in my opinion, the, the minute you start doing those things as a sporting director, or you, or you have an organisation that does that, then you're heading into pretty difficult waters, really. Um, I think the head coach has got to be really clear that he's happy with the player that's going to come in the building, and he's happy to work with them and recognises that, that they can add value. The minute you don't do that, it becomes a bit of a mess. So so that's generally how we operated. And and sometimes you know, Nuno would pick choice one and sometimes he'd pick choice two. Or or other times he'd pick neither of them. <laughs> and then we'd have to find and then we'd have to find somebody else. But um that's generally how it's worked. We've only ever signed players that Nuno's been um of course quite rightly so has been happy with and has signed off on. And just finally, Kevin, we get so many tweets every week asking Tim in particular, oh, a bit worried about Nuno's contract, he's only got a year left, and oh, a bit worried, and Tim always says, chill out, chill out, because it doesn't really matter about contracts with him, you know, he's happy for now, and blah, blah, blah. But do you yeah. see him staying and and this success story carrying on for many years, or do you think Wolves fans need to sort of take a reality check a little bit and just say, enjoy the moment and, and see where it gets us this year and maybe next year? Well, well I think there's no doubt that he's a top coach. And he's going to work at the very highest level, in my opinion. But I also think, um, I think we all recognise that there's lots of good things that sit in Wolves, sit at Wolves, that, that surround and support him in the right way. And you know, if I'm thinking about anything, that, that Wolves, should Wolves fans be nervous about losing Nuno? Well, yeah, of course they should, because he's a top head coach. There's no doubt about it. Why wouldn't you be nervous about losing him? But on the flip side of that, the real positive thing to think about is that the only way that you keep the players and the head coach happy, is if you are able to match their ambition. And I would say that over the course of the time that Nuno's been at Wolves and we've recruited some brilliant players, we've been able to keep them satisfied because we are matching their ambition. You know, FA Cup semi-final, uh, getting promoted from Championship to the Premier League, you know, finishing as high as we did in the Premier League, Europa League, you know. So from that perspective, it's, it's, the, the story will continue if we're able to if Wolves are able to continue to match our ambition, in my opinion. And, and there doesn't seem to be any sign of that slowing down from a frozen perspective, which can only, which can only point to good times if that continues to happen. And, and let's hope it does. Leave it on a positive. <laughs> Thank you so yeah. much, Kevin. Brilliant to get your insight on the Molly New View. No, you're welcome. Thanks for having me. Really enjoyed it. Thank you. And good luck. Hopefully you get back to go to New York again soon, which would be wonderful and, and start the next chapter in earnest.
Yeah, no, very much looking forward to getting back there and getting back to a getting back to some sort of regular football would be great, wouldn't it? Tim, that was Kevin Thelwell referring to Wolves as we quite a lot. It gets under your skin, doesn't it, that club? Yeah, definitely, yeah. I mean, he was embedded there for 11 years, wasn't he? Clearly meant a lot to him. A wrench to leave, I'm sure, but, you know, we all wish him well. Um, such a fantastic opportunity at New York Red Bulls. A great move for him. And yeah, it was it was really interesting listening listening to some of his insight there. And I've always felt, Jackie, I'm sure you'd agree that he doesn't quite get the credit he deserves for the work he did at the club. And I was I always found that interesting as as a reporter that you know you'd have people at the club praising him repeatedly and saying how how fantastic he is and how potentially things could fall apart if he was to leave. Um, and then you had fans saying get rid of him, he's useless. He signed Grant Holt, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So um, good to hear his side of the story. And it is interesting that he hasn't been replaced and Wolves have gone for a um, a new structure now is what you'd say. So, yeah, I think as we've said on this podcast before, they're not looking to directly replace him. Instead, they've got five or six key personnel, some of whom Kevin alluded to, um, that step up and now report to Jeff Shee directly. So, yeah, he's um, he did a great job for many years and um, certainly isn't underappreciated by, by those that he worked for and, uh, and under. Yeah, interesting. From your article at the time of his departure, you said, from the head of recruitment to the head groundsman, everyone on the football side of the club reports to Thelwell, a football chief executive, if you will. He manages down, he manages up to Jeff Shee, he scouts players, he sorts out contracts, he's a public face of the club to many, the first port of call at Wolves for hundreds of people in the game. So very interesting he's not being replaced. Yeah, definitely. And I think, I think you know, the, the, Men- the Mendes issue is, is one that won't go away while he's, while he's still linked with the club. And... Obviously, you know, we know that he's influential when it comes to top level first team recruitment. And I guess Wolves' dilemma would be um, do they go out there for a really high profile sporting director um, to replace Kevin Thelwell, who who maybe wouldn't be happy with, with those circumstances? So maybe maybe they've had um maybe they've had trouble doing that, I don't know. But they seem to be very happy with the, with the structure they've put in place. It's on a rolling basis, and they'll see how they get through the next kind of couple of transfer windows when it comes to recruitment. Um, and then, of course, they've always got the option to hire. You know, should they should they feel the need to? But it's the same situation with Laurie Dalrymple. He hasn't been replaced either, and um, the club seems to be getting on fine without them at the moment. So let's hope that continues. And you can listen back to the bonus pod that we did straight after Kevin Thelwell's resignation. It was on 4th of February. So if you go to your podcast platform to the Molyneux View and go back to the 4th of February and Tim's full analysis from when it was brand new. I think it was that night. We just finished recording another pod, hadn't we? And we're like, oh, great. Breaking news. Thanks. (laughs) Got back to the setup in the lounge. And there we were. Now you ready for some tweets, Tim? Mm, let's go. We've had some quite fun ones, actually. Let's do the football ones first, and then we'll go back to the um, the fun ones, if you like. Uh, Mick, MD, when do you think fans will be allowed back in the ground? And do you think it'll be full capacity or seat spacing? Yeah, good question. Um, I think Spain and Italy are proposing that their grounds could be one third full uh, as early as this month. Now, whether that happens remains to be seen, but I don't think we're going to get a situation in England where... Molyneux is empty one week and then full of 30,000 people the next the next week. There's bound to be a gradual return to fans coming to matches and um, that certainly won't be this season. Um, I think it's something that they'll look at for next season. But again, the logistics are a nightmare. What do they do with season tickets? Um, who's let into the ground if, if, if they've got five, ten thousand inside Molyneux? You know, who's allowed in? All sorts of logistical problems to go through. But I think in practice... 
I don't see why it can't happen. You know, socially distancing fans, three empty seats for one seat being taken up, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, we're seeing theatres being being used in that way uh, overseas. So I'm, I'm sure it'll I'm sure it'll gradually happen as the months go on. Is Raoul training, asks Louis Silvani, seems to be missing from the videos Wolves have put out, probably down to his partner being due to give birth, he says. Yeah. Well, he's not due to give birth until July, so doubt that's the case. Like I said earlier that all training sessions have been filmed. I think that the, me- the media have, have filmed a couple of training sessions. The first one, Jimenez missed. Oh, I can't remember why. The second one, media were back with a camera the other day. And I think there was a bit of a, a bit of a collective groan when they realised that Jimenez was uh, in hospital that day with his wife. I think a baby appointment. So again, he's missed a session. There's all sorts of conspiracy theories going around on Twitter. I am assured, and I've no reason to disbelieve it, that he is training as normal. And it's just been a coincidence that the two days that the cameras have been filming for all the stuff they put out on Twitter, he's not been there. But he, he was he was certainly training when they were doing individual training because he put some stuff on Instagram I remember at the time, so I've no reason not to believe that he's uh, that he's not training at the moment. But obviously, yeah, we know um, he's got this baby coming up, so he'll have lots of hospital appointments and whatnot as well. He will. And if the baby's due in July, previously that was absolutely perfect timing, wasn't it? Pretty much. Mm, um, probably planned that way, that... Jackie. You might you might suggest <laughs> attention to detail. Um, <laughs> but but hey. Anyway, we wish his partner all the best of luck. And AM asks, Luke Matheson, if EFL doesn't continue, would he be able to join us training ASAP, obviously not able to play, or still not until the end of the season? Would there have been any contact with him during lockdown? Wolves have clearly been so well prepared with home training, etc. Yeah, con- contact for sure. And we had, we had say, Alfred and Yana on a few weeks ago, loans manager, that's his job, to look after the loan players. So... He'll be being looked after. I mean, he was training at Compton, you know, before um, before all this business, and he was kind of splitting his time between Rochdale and Wolves in terms of his training schedule. So yeah, League One vote is next week, I believe. I mean, uh, doesn't look likely to me that League One will be will be brought back. But of course, will he be able to get on the list at Wolves to train? You know, they're very being very particular about who can and can't train there. They've only allowed forty or fifty people who are allowed to be at Compton Park. Um, and if he's not going to play with the first team, I'm not sure why they'd let him back into training just yet, to be honest. So every individual's got different circumstances. But yeah, he's um, certainly been looked after. And um, I think they can't wait to have a look at him, to be honest, um, ahead of next season. Leo Muir, during Nuno's three years at Wolves, which single moment scores highest on the filth scale? Tim does like to tweet about filth when particularly Neves is doing rude things on the pitch. A particular Neves screamer through ball, a moment of Matinho magic, an unstoppable Jota run. Great pod cheers, says Leo. Ooh, that's a tough one for you. You're every game. I mean, the the Neves derby goal is so obvious. Well, I remember remember, um, a defence splitting pass against Burton, this is very niche, in March 2018, I think I'm right in saying. It, uh, there's, oh, there's a video or a gif of it somewhere. He's got the ball on halfway and he's trying to play in Hilda Costa and he splits about three defenders uh, with a low pass. Oh, I'll, I'll have to tweet it out, it's amazing. Oh, and also the Ryan Bennett did a back heel flick against Spurs at Wembley, which just kind of epitomised everything about walks when you've got <laughs> Ryan Bennett doing things like that. Um, regular Dolly Parton, Ted says, good morning, Lord Spears and Lady Oatley. Please, would you kindly, he's very polite, is Dolly. Would you kindly discuss how much money will be available for transfers in the summer window? The stadium works on modest in order to facilitate summer team spending. 
he asks. It's a good question. Until Wolves know what their income levels are going to be, you know, for next season, then it's very hard to put together a transfer budget. And, it's, you know, it's not just fans buying tickets, it's all the corporate offerings as well that they offer, sponsorship at the ground. So they'll have no idea what their income levels are going to be. And that makes transfers very difficult indeed, doesn't it? I mean, they've spent $100 million in the last two summers. You've got to think that would be greatly, greatly reduced. But there will still be money to spend and they've still got to... Everyone's got to improve their squads. It'll just be done in moderation, I think. Um, and we'll, we'll still see a lot of transfer movement around Europe, but just not the kind of sums being spent that we've seen in the past. I'd love to see this as a kind of a watershed moment for, for finances in football, you know, in terms of wages and transfer fees and maybe... Maybe we can start um, putting a bit of a, uh, a cap, physically or otherwise, on, on the amount of money that's been spent, but um, probably not. I mean, imagine if they did manage to qualify for the Champions League. The six at the moment, they're five points behind Chelsea in fourth, with Man United two points ahead of Wolves at the moment. And, of course, they could win the Europa League. Imagine if they did qualify for the Champions League and they'd have about two weeks' notice or something, wouldn't they? Yeah, it's rid- yeah ridiculous. Well, that's the interesting thing that we're waiting to see is, is when's the next season going to start and, and how much time will, will there be between seasons? Ted also asks, another question, please. If football is being played behind closed doors, how come there's a doubt about the extension works to Molyneux taking place this summer? Construction work is being allowed by the government. Thank you. This keeps coming up week after week after week is Molyneux redevelopment. People want to know why there's not more work being done. Yeah, great question. I fully appreciate Fans, um, confusion maybe about this. I, I did a big piece in January, and as far as I'm aware, that all still stands that they are not going to be fully redeveloping Molyneux, and it's more small improvements to the South Bank and the Steve Ball stand. And finances are the main reason behind it, as far as I understand. And you know, we talk about they might not be spending as much money on transfers. Well, the same goes for Molyneux, you know, they're not going to be spending dozens or hundreds of millions of pounds on revamping Molyneux at the moment, are they? That's the last thing they're going to do. In theory, is the perfect time to do it because there's no matches being played. But in, in reality, with so many question marks over finances, you know, they're not going to spend that kind of money. So um, the 500 capacity temporary stand, that should be built for next season. Um, but again, we don't quite know when that is yet. So, so much is up in the air, but there'll, there'll be no... There'll be no major redevelopment of Molyneux in the near future. That if we can be assured. Um, now, this is a fun one. Here we go. Before this season, asks Richard Roten, what was your most surreal or unusual match day experience following Wolves or other games? Good question. Um, that Burton game I mentioned unusual. earlier with the Neves yeah. pass, that was the, that was the coldest I've ever been, ever in life, let alone at a football match. And... The press box at Molyneux, there was a sheet of ice on the um, on the floor. So you were trying to get to your seat, and it was a, it was a sheet of ice. And those journalists, not me, who dress very smartly and wear and wear proper work shoes, they could barely move. It was ridiculous. And then um, during the game, I spilt my coffee on the table. Right, uh, didn't have anything to clean it up with. And twenty minutes later, there was an iced coffee on on the table. The coffee had frozen into ice, uh, so yeah, that was that was completely bizarre. But I, I imagine you're going to trump me with um, with something weird and wonderful that's happened to you at a football ground over the years. Um, I've, yeah, I've had quite a few weird things happen to me at football grounds. Uh, one at Molyneux, but it wasn't a Wolves game. It was. Do you remember? Probably not because you're a Bairn. But the England Under Twenty One match at Molyneux, which was 
put off for a couple of hours, I think, because there'd been a suspicious package found in a bin. Yeah, that rings a bell. It was um, outside the ground. Yeah, yeah. I think it was outside. I, I think it was outside the Steve Bull or John Island, as it was at the time. And uh, and anyway, so I was working as a steward that day. No, I wasn't. I was working as a what they called uh, lottery ticket salesperson. So I go and get the tickets before the game in the North Bank, and then I go and try and sell <laughs> tickets. And this would pay for my ticket because um, I was a poor student. Anyway, so this was happening, and I wasn't a journalist or likely to be. I hadn't even thought about it at the time. But I was just kind of right. What's happening? I need to find out. So I found out there'd been a suspicious package, and I made my way up to the press box. And I remember seeing Pat Murphy in the press box, and and I said to him. Um, Oh, I've been told that there's a suspicious package and that the game's going to be postponed. I remember him looking me up and down as if like, who are you and why are you telling me this? And what would you possibly know? <laughs> and I just remember feeling about one foot tall. Um, and anyway, I told him and, and that's what happened. But it turned out to be a cheese sandwich. And it was, um, <laughs> yeah. And so the game was game was played very late. I think it kicked off about 10 o'clock or something. It was donkey's years ago. Uh, the other one was being... Sandwich. The other one was at Southend United and that awful press box that was that's enclosed with windows and doors. Awful, you can't see the ground properly. And I was chatted up by a former player who was commentating as a summariser next to me for local radio for Essex. And he, chatting me up all the way through the game. And I kept trying to see what was happening, which was quite hard because the light was reflecting off the, the glass. And, uh, and I was just thinking, like, you're literally commentating on this game you're supposed to be interjecting with views and thoughts on the match. And all he kept saying was, do you fancy coming out with me tomorrow night? I'm going at Piccadilly no. Circus with a load of mates. But, and then I saw him a couple of weeks later at um, Albion with his wife and kids. Oh. Oh. He wasn't an Albion player at all, but um, any road up. That is it, I think, for this week, Tim. On that note, thank you for one. all your insights and for your articles this week, which have been brilliant. And if you do want to read them, hopefully you have already, but if not, you're missing out. So you need to subscribe to theathletic.co.uk and then go to Premier League and search for Wolves and you'll find all of Tim's stuff. You can search on the app for Tim's name and all his articles come up there. You can also listen to the podcast without any adverts if you're listening via the app, for which you have to be a subscriber. We will be back with you next Tuesday morning on your regular podcast platform. Do listen back to some previous pods if you'd like to to pass the time until football returns. It is not long now. Bye for now. Mm-hmm.